episode of Pains, Gains, and Automobiles. This is a podcast about the development of modern cities and how transportation shapes the way we live. It's hosted by myself, Armand Bachman, and Ken Greenberg. My name is Ken Greenberg, and I'm an urban designer, a teacher, writer, and a consultant. I've lived in a number of cities in the U.S., Canada, and Europe. We met when I was Armand's mentor at the University of Toronto when he was doing a Master of Public Policy focusing on transportation. Together, Ken and I are exactly 50 years apart in age, but we share a similar interest, urban policy, and how a city's dependence on cars over modes of public transportation can leave a strong impact on ways of life. In our first two episodes, we talked about the historical development of cities from subway and streetcar suburbs to car-oriented suburbs and back again, the euphoria, then the deception and buyer's remorse, and then the impacts of car-centric city building, how the urban world was altered and how it in turn shaped our lives. And on this episode, our third, we will be focusing on how we see cars as a collective, how our changing perceptions of cars in pop culture have altered how we relate to them as the symbols of status and freedom and how we identify with them. So to get us started, uh, Ken, I was wondering, what did cars mean to you and to people around you when you were growing up? So cars in my childhood had a, an unquestioned association with progress, and it was a really big deal. Um, we all you know, all the people in my age cohort, all the kids growing up, uh, made it a point to know all the latest models of the cars. Uh, my sister and I used to play games when we were traveling on road trips, uh, seeing who could more quickly identify the cars. They were all visually very distinctive, very new, and very exciting. And when anyone in the neighborhood where I was growing up family members or even friends or neighbors got a new car, they would come by, um, ring the doorbell and say, uh, come out and see my new car and kick the tires outside. It was something to be very excited about. We were also uh, very aware of auto shows, uh, the place to see the latest and the greatest. Uh, magazines like Popular Mechanics and Popular Science featured all the new cars and all the different new inventions that went along with the cars. So it was everything about the future. So I'm going to ask you the same question. How about for you? How did cars figure in your early life? How was it similar and how was it different? Um, in some ways, it was similar. I think, you know, I do remember growing up and a couple times going to auto shows and seeing kind of the new cars and the concept cars. That was always exciting although i can't remember a single concept car i saw that ever actually ended up being a production vehicle but that's maybe a different topic um there's only i guess i only went to a couple though but um otherwise though for my my at least in my own family we never really got brand new cars the cars we got were always used and we really saw them as very much more for their utility of getting us around and if it was used and had, you know, oftentimes used cars, the moment they're off the lot, they depreciate a, yeah, a quite a substantially. So you can get a used car, a car that's maybe a less than five years old, pretty nice new car, a relatively new car with like, I don't know, 30,000 kilometers on it. And for our family, we'd be like, this is great. This is pretty much a, pretty much a new car. Like the other person didn't drive this at all. And so we're, we're lucking out and getting a deal on this car. So the excitement of a brand new car 
didn't exist in my we I, I don't think we ever got a brand new car not to say we didn't have the cars we did have are were relatively nice cars just a few years older um you know like my dad had a you got a used land cruiser which is a pretty nice like you know off like he off-roading car i guess he used it for he added um some he raised it and stuff to be able to do that but he's got it used but it was still a it's still a very nice car like leather seats and that kind of stuff so we liked having that those things about cars but the excitement of it being new and coming out and kicking the tires wasn't as much there we really valued them for how they were able to get around the city um comfortably and you know maybe not a lot of maintenance costs and stuff like that you don't want to clunker right because those are just expenses but other than that it wasn't really the excitement of getting a a similar sort of excitement although that's maybe my own family and i don't want to speak for collectively although i i wouldn't say it was friends of mine would say hey come check out our family's brand new car it wasn't really a a common experience for me although i'm sure it maybe happened every now and then yeah so i think what you're saying is things cooled off people yeah. there were other things in life that were more exciting that spoke to how oh, the world was changing cars didn't play exactly that same role anymore yeah and there were they were less of a new thing and in some ways you almost people almost look back at older cars in a way like looking back at old muscle cars for example yeah. and remembering kind of being interested in vintage cars which is kind of a that could only happen after car culture had been around for so long, right? right. But it's an interesting difference, and they had become almost a part of history by the t in, the, in a, a certain way. And the fact that people were looking back at these iconic cars, like I don't know, Thunderbirds, or I know with the just to bring in a pop culture example, the new the Transformers movies, they had a, one of the Transformers came in an old Camaro, a '70s Camaro, and then he changes into the updated, new, revamped. Camaro that they re-released in um the 2000 2008 or 2009 and I think GM actually you know gave them a mm -hmm. some Camaros to use for that movie it was a big they saw it as an opportunity to associate their brand with these cool transformer right. robots which I think was pretty successful and I was reading earlier I didn't realize that the um the bad the evil robots in those are all Fords <laughs> I never noticed that but I guess they're Mustangs and stuff like that so Maybe Ford wanted that kind of edgy look, but also maybe GM kind of wanted to differentiate seem like the so. good guys. Yeah. So it's interesting you're starting to talk about that change. And um, if you look back at the history and how the look and feel of cars changed over time, it said a lot about your place in society. So when Henry Ford came out with the Model T, mm -hmm which was a utilitarian, always black car, uh, no adornments. The whole idea was supposed to be the car for every man. And I say man deliberately. They didn't say every person. That, that's how they thought about it. It was the head of the family. Um, and then you started to get this differentiation speaking to who you were, your identity. So things like the insignia, the hood ornaments became really important and identifiable, uh, the styling. And so the design of cars really spoke to the zeitgeist of, of the era. It was space age, aerodynamic. Uh, in the 1950s, the fins were a big deal, you know, as if the cars were going to fly. They were going to leave the earth. Um, the cars, the designs were also 
And by the way, these were all sculpted full scale in clay. And we would often see the designers, the, the car designers were kind of heroes. Mm, interesting. So, and, and we knew their names, uh, you know, whoever hears of them now. And so they were making these sculptures and they started to be this combination of space age, but also anthropomorphic. Um, the big American cars had breasts, uh, which protruded in the front. They had curves. Uh, there were sort of female illusions. Uh, and then they became really different. There were family cars, cars that were identified with the family, uh, station wagons that had wood paneling, kind of this heritage reference to stagecoaches and, and wagons. Right, yeah. Um, but then, as you were mentioning, there were the sports cars, the muscle cars, the Corvettes, the Thunderbirds, uh, which were appealing to another kind of people. Um, by the way, at that time, the cars were so much simpler that almost everybody knew how to fix cars. Uh, you could change the spark plugs. You knew what a carburetor was. Uh, you could get under the hood. And for teenagers, the idea of souping up their cars... They weren't these sophisticated computers that they became later. This was something that everybody could do. And then entering into the picture, there were the European cars. And hmm. instead of the gigantic North American versions, the big, flat, heavy ones, we started to see the Citroën, and then for certain people, the Duchevaux, the two-horsepower French car. You even know that car? I can't say I'm familiar with okay, that one. It's, it's like a tin can on wheels. Okay. And it has a really simple stick shift. and Very utilitarian. Completely utilitarian. Mm -hmm. uh, it went quite slowly, but it, it kind of spoke to a certain politics of, you know, let's not exaggerate. Let's have something really cheap that yeah. anybody can use. Uh, then the Japanese cars came. Uh, at one point, uh, everybody was measuring their car by the power. So people would talk about the size of the engine. Sometimes it was horsepower and sometimes it was how many cc's the engine had. Europeans typically didn't talk, talk about horsepower. They talked about, you know, the Cinquecento, the 500 cc Fiat. Right, okay. uh, and, you know, every car was identified by that. And in fact, what was going on is the cars began to replicate the social classes. So the big three automakers in North America each had a range of brands and models, which were a replication of the hierarchy of class and society. Yeah. The chassis was always the same, or more or less the same. The engines were only slightly different, but the styling, depending on which model from Ford, GM, uh, you had, told you where you fit into Chrysler, right. in, into the social order. And then families developed a loyalty. So you would have a Ford family and everybody in the extended family always had Fords or Chevys. Um, so I graduated eventually from the secondhand cars, the teenager, to Volkswagens, which became my brand for a while, to Fiats, then to Hondas. And then you had the upper class, the Bentleys, the Rolls Royce. And what was really interesting about Cadillac was Cadillac was both the car of choice of wealthy business people and pimps. Mm, yeah. They both aspired to to the same car. Uh, nobody talked about efficiency. Nobody talked about gas mileage. The cars were big. They were heavy. 
but they really were like clothing for people that you wore and spoke to who you were. So how about now? How much is that still true? I'd say that is maybe less important for people of um, younger generations, although I won't necessarily say that they're not as interested in, you know, displaying their class status in certain other in certain ways, but it could be other ways now, you know, with maybe social media stuff, people are showing the dinner, the places they go for dinner, and they have a certain entree average price that's different than other places. And you can kind of figure things out from there. But I so I but I do think there is still a place where um kind of glamorizing exotic cars, sports cars, um, but I also think there's a, the, and maybe this existed before too, but a kind of a response to that where people kind of look at that and think, oh, you're all, you're, that's superficial. You're clearly trying to show yourself to be a certain status and almost look a little bit skeptically at that as well. Um, maybe that always existed, but I think it's, I see it online. Sometimes people post cars and then in the comments, people will kind of make fun of the car and yeah. things like that. Um, but I do think that what you were describing of the sing, the same car makers having these different classes of car with, you know, um, General Motors, for example, they have Chevrolet, Buick, and Cadillac. Right. Um, and I I've have noticed just recently these, you know, cars that when I was younger, they were ex- pretty much exotic sports cars, Lamborghini, Maseratis, cars like that, Porsches, that I always thought they make sports cars. They make fast cars that... You sit two people in, and maybe you can fold up the front seat and it's got in the back. But now, in recent recently, they've been—I don't know if you've noticed—they've started to release kind of crossover cars, almost small SUVs that are similar to the stereotypical soccer mom car, which yeah. I think is an interesting how they've maybe realized that their market for these two-door sports cars is smaller, but they still have luxury customers out there that. You know, just like people that that choose to buy a a Lexus crossover, maybe they want to go that even that extra tier up and get a Maserati crossover to take to go to you know do their you know do their errands around the house and they need the around the city and they need the space for it. I think that's been a really interesting thing in the last decade. I I also think you know what I'm noticing is the extent to which the cars all start to look like the same. It's almost yeah. like there's one car, and there are a few deviations from that, but basically there's a herd, and everybody has ended up with this shape, which is kind of similar. It comes in different sizes. Obviously, there are the SUVs, the full-size SUVs, the smaller SUVs, and the sedans, but the differentiation seems to be more about the wizardry in the car, mm-hmm. the gadgets, the computers, the you know all, all the stuff that you have. Uh, can the kids watch TV in the back? Uh, it's all that kind of stuff more than the actual, really differentiated shape of the car. Two tone cars have virtually disappeared. That was a big deal in the age of the fins. They were very exotic looking. They were big. They were flat. They they tried to look as much as possible like rockets that happened to be mm-hmm. on the ground. All that seems to have gone by the way. I guess you were alluding to the fact earlier that those cars weren't built with any thought of fuel economy, emissions standards, anything like that. And as um, I believe it wasn't necessarily any car makers suddenly becoming more principled and making their cars more efficient, but kind of needing to because of the oil crisis of the seventies and the high cost of fuel. 
and needing to somehow allow, keep people on the roads by making their fuel costs smaller. So, and with time, there is just better aerodynamics and worse aerodynamics, and right. you start to see a limitation of the range of shapes. So, like you were saying, the differentiation becomes in the computers in the car. The you know, do you have power seats or manual seats and all these things? And then to the point of, do you have TVs in the back? Do you yeah. have I guess some cars now have wide internet in the car somehow with, yeah. um, connected to the cell phone networks, I think. So it's all become internal. And if you look closely, even I think you look at Toyotas and Lexuses and they have the same, um, the same turn the this for turning on your turn signal, they yeah. have the same levers and for your, um, turning on your windshield wipers, they have the same yeah. levers. Cause why bother differentiating when, like it's the same company, save money with that stuff. Sure. So it's just all a lot of the components are more similar than. And not. the big deal, like in the Tesla, is what's on the screen and all the computer simulations of the environment you're going through. Yeah, and the updates that yeah. come every now and then that you can yeah. pay for. So the way cars were shown in popular culture over time, we're talking about how we experience them, but in popular culture, really reflected some of this. So. Um, you know, I think of the music of the Beach Boys, the whole image of the California open highway, mm -hmm. uh, in the literary world, Jack Kerouac on the road, the, in, in North American society, Route 66 yeah. was celebrated in, uh, in blues and jazz. Uh, it was a restless mobile society and a lot of that moving around, which people had previously done when they moved from east to west in the country, and uh, you had the sort of 19th century wagon trains was all replaced by now uh, exploring the country in the car. And then I, I think of a, a famous scene in the movie Breathless with Jean-Paul Belmondo, and he's he has to go half a block uh, in a certain direction and he gets into a convertible and he puts the top down slowly and then in my recollection he doesn't even go forward he backs up half a block huh. and then the top comes down again to show that i'm not walking right yeah i'm you know i'm i'm gonna be in my car the sitcoms and the movies of my childhood but particularly the television sitcoms when the first ones were urban they were people who lived in the heart of the city, so you probably won't know these names. The Life of Riley. They were about blue-collar people who lived in apartment buildings in the heart of the city. The Life of Riley was one. The Honeymooners, famously, with Jack, uh, mm -hmm. Jackie Gleason. Jackie Gleason played this character called Ralph Cramden, who was a bus driver. Right. Yeah. His, uh, his sidekick, Ed Norton, was a sewer worker. They lived in a very Spartan apartment building, actually not all that unlike the apartment that I lived in when I was a kid in Brooklyn. Uh, it, was, it was playing to that environment. And then as the car came in, the sitcoms also changed. So Ozzie and Harriet, Father Knows Best, uh, all of these sitcoms, it had moved to suburbia, and the car, which had never featured in those earlier sitcoms, started to appear. They became part of the stories, part of the part of the narrative, um, and at the same time, 
you have the car in a in a kind of parallel way emerging in sports and recreation. So uh, Formula One racing becomes extremely popular as mm-hmm. a spectator sport. Indy cars, stock car racing, uh, as you were mentioning before, vintage cars. You know, car shows where people uh, were fascinated by these older models. And then the car as a living space that people could personalize, which has really changed a great deal now. The car as a bedroom, uh, a big idea in popular culture was making out in the backseat of the car. Yeah, driving out to a view spot somewhere. and Seduction, seduction in the car. And a lot of people would, uh, you know, either facetiously or, I guess in some cases, realistically, talking about the fact that they were conceived in the back seat of their their parents' car. So the the car became something almost like your back. It was almost like a turtle. You were in the car and it was your shell. And eventually we got to uh the R V, uh, which became the literal embodiment of that. It was is the, the house transformed into a car or the car transformed into a house. And then, you know, finally I'll just say the way cars were sold was really interesting, and that's still true today. Whenever you see advertisements for cars, they are never where most of them are all the time in a traffic jam. Yeah. You always see them in these exotic locales on the open road. We still tell ourselves lies, or the car manufacturers tell us lies about how the cars are actually going to be used. And then finally... The, the chase, the car chase, became something which you almost had to have in, in certain any movies. adventure movie. Yeah. Uh, it, it was, you couldn't have a movie without a car chase. It became essential. So, you know, that's what I was seeing. How about you? Honestly, I think for me, a lot of similar things, you talking about um, the cars as a bedroom made me think of... I, almost a trope of movies I think is revealing a character that maybe he drives up in his car. And the, even the fact that he has a car is, Oh, he has a car. We can, he can take us around. He can take me to do things. That's I'm with, I'm, he's like a, someone that a high schooler would want to date because he has a car yeah. is I think a kind of a trope in some certain coming of age type movies, maybe even horror movies that are feeling to like kind of playing on that coming of age genre. Um, but I do think in kind of to pick up on what you were talking about, how sitcoms over time kind of reveal, they can be a lens at looking at how people were viewing their relation to where they lived, how they lived at any given time. Cause I do think culture is for the most part, fairly downstream of politics and what's going on. It's informed by people's, experiences in life so um in that way you can really see not it's not necessarily prescient it's a little a little bit after the fact of what is going on so i think one interesting one that i know we've talked about before is the show cheers and then shows like seinfeld and friends um and even a more recent show the uh new girl that show younger people or in the case of cheers all sorts of people living in a more urban environment where one thing I've noticed that's an interesting feature is if you compare them to shows where people live more in car-dependent suburbs, say, to just to compare a show made at a similar time, a show like That 70s Show or Everybody Loves Raymond, 
um, the characters I've, if I recall, they're quite often at their own homes. Uh, in that 70s show, they're hanging out in the basement or they're playing basketball out front. Um, sometimes they go to a little a local diner, but mostly they're hanging out at home with all their friends, kind of hang out at home, or they're at whatever location is kind of the special location for that episode. Whereas shows like, and that's also the case with Everybody Loves Raymond, shows like that, but then maybe they're at work in a show like Everybody Loves Raymond, whereas that 70s show, they go to school. Um, but then shows like Friends and Seinfeld, Cheers, and New Girl, they all have third places that are very much featured in those shows a lot, where Cheers is ex itself, it's based all around this local bar that all these people go to from very different walks of life, and they become familiar with one another, and they get to know each other, and are, that's the whole premise of that program, is that people just, you know, that's the local bar that they, that they live near, so they always go to that, and they become friends with all the local kind of people in the neighborhood there. And then similarly in Friends, they go to that coffee shop all the time. Um, in another show, How I Met Your Mother, they're always at the same bar. So they're, they're still in their apartments, but also there's this place that's almost in every episode that's this third location that you don't see as much in suburban um, shows that are more in more car-dependent suburban areas. Where it was often the drive-in. Yeah, the drive-in movie. You would see the drive-in movie. You'd see the um, drive-in restaurant. Uh, Hanging out at the drive-in was was the the suburban equivalent, and it always featured getting there in the car. And I, if I'm not wrong, I'm trying to think of Seinfeld. I don't think they own cars, or they don't. It doesn't they're, appear that they own cars, but they occasionally use cars. And when they do, it's a big deal. Yeah, there there's a few episodes where the whole, almost the entire storyline of I think one in, in one case George Costanza's and his entire storyline that episode is competing over a parking spot. Yeah, and he tries to get there first. There's a guy there, and he's getting into this spat over this parking spot. And I know there's another one where they get lost in a parkade. The entire episode is them lost in a parkade. And I think a third one that is quite funny, because I think it's very pretty relatable for people that have owned a car, is um, Jerry lo loans his car to Kramer, and then he gets it back, and there's a weird smell in the car, and he yeah. can't do anything about the smell. He doesn't know what it is. He's getting it cleaned, and... I think sometimes we've all been in a, a car that something's happened to it, that it's had a, a smell that we just can't get rid of and put our finger on. So I do think it's, especially the parking one in um, Seinfeld, because they're living in downtown yeah. New York. Parking, like to go back to our first episode, you were talking about you, big, two people wanting to have you as a witness yeah. over a parking dispute yeah. when you were growing up in New York. So um kind of a funny thing that happens in the show that yeah, and, happens and all the time. Even the way, I mean, parking is always kind of in peripheral vision, but it's revealing. Like in all the suburban sitcoms, there's a big parking lot. Parking is free, and you never have to do parallel parking. Yeah, they just, you just pull, right pull into the space. So the whole idea of, of parallel parking and then people being anxious about coming into the city, where am I going to park? All the anxiety about that also gets revealed. Mm -hmm. So, what you know, as both of us are describing this, there's a kind of underlying change that's happening. The old paradigm still per persists; it still exists. Many of those same things are still happening. Uh, we're far from saying the car is dead or the fascination with the car is gone. It's still there, but there there are other ideas about the car that are emerging. Um, 
the idea that the car is now more a computer on wheels than, you know, this big internal combustion, 500 horsepower mm -hmm. thing that, that doesn't have any of that. Um, it's about multitasking in the car, um, being able to do other things, having assisted guidance in the car with GPS and everything that uh, that pretends, um, using the time that you're stuck in the commute in the car to be in your bubble and to be doing other things, communicating with people, uh, a whole different way of, even for people who are dependent on cars, using them. And as well, the idea of what if you take, if you're the turtle and you take the shell off your back and you're revealed without the car, what is life without the car? And what are the other things a substitute for the car? And you were talking about the third places and people socializing in different ways. Uh, so to me, it always raises the big question because we're trying to become less dependent on cars of taking this thing, which in my early childhood was became out of nowhere so central to people's identity and indispensable, actually, and really the way they got to where and how they were going to live differently in places, as we said in the previous episode, shaped by cars, to going through a kind of withdrawal. Right, uh, and yeah. And so that is fascinating. But then also is what's happening in the rest of the world. We've been kind of focusing on North America, but... The very things, you know, if you go back several decades that were happening here in places like China and India and other parts of the world where people have more wealth now, still associating cars with social class, with status, with, you know, all the things that people aspire to. Um, and it raises the question of, um, do they have to go through all the bad steps that we went through to eventually get to a place where they rethink the car? Or is there a way of short-circuiting that, of substituting a, a different idea about success and identity uh, without going through all those steps? I think there's reason to be optimistic in some cases there. Um, I think uh, Japan is a, maybe a good example where they've really limited the, the amount of cars that are used in a lot of their cities by having narrow cities, limited parking, and really focusing on investing in good rails, a really amazing rail network, one of the best in the world. And if you look at China over the last 10 years, say one thing about China, they've definitely invested in their high-speed rail network quite incredibly. And it's compared from, you look at a 2008 map to a map to now, it's remarkable how networked that um, country is. Um, but also you do see massive highways there, huge traffic jams, and definitely the kind of that old you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, the stereotype of seeing street filled with bicycles is now filled with cars. So they are like all of these countries, I think it's, uh, it seems like it is going to be a tension that exists. But I also think particularly in a similar way to Europe, they are older countries that have a lot more fabric of their, their cities that are from these times when it was, you had to walk. Um, and I think that kind of similar to in a similar way to Europe, that value, having that connection and to the history and 
they're essentially being a limit to how much people are willing to reshape their cities to accommodate cars because people are proud of their history and their you know historical architecture and things like that so um that's kind of a i think at the end of the day that's the big differentiation between north and south america and um the old world as it, you would call it i guess um but also i think in i know um a few years ago i was in visiting family in iran and we were in esfahan and an old historic boulevard there in the, the really old part of town built in the 1600s um which had been at one point turned into a driving boulevard was while we were there was being was undergoing renovations to be turned into pedestrian only again a lot of shops opening up a nice garden down the middle of the boulevard with really nice trees and now it's essentially they finished that project so it's looking like quite a nice almost new urbanist area that i think is a good example of trying to go to bring cars into this historic area and then realizing it's a mistake and we should go back to how it used to be and i think that's happening in um you know not only iran but i'm sure it's happening all over you know turkey um likely other countries in the middle east to an extent and then also i think china and and japan and korea are good examples too i actually wanted to speak quickly about a very i think interesting uh south korean movie called train to busan which is a movie it's a zombie outbreak movie that came out in 2016 but it's all based around uh characters trying to escape and get around on trains because they're all commuting by train the train network is extensive there and i thought watching that movie i thought this is a movie that could only really have been made in a country like south korea where they have such an extensive extensive train network where the entire movie is you could it's a typical kind of zombie outbreak movie where the characters are running from zombies but they're running from train car to train car closing the train cars between them and then running from one train in the station to another one and then getting it to go because the tracks are blocked things like that so it's kind of a, a movie that couldn't really have been made in north america i think well you know what's interesting is we did have those movies in north america if you go back before the second world war oh yeah uh it was streetcars and trains and you know all of those car chases and you know all those exciting things a lot of them actually happened exactly as you were saying in uh running from train car to train car people jumping off trains jumping on trains getting to different places you know i'm thinking of all the the film noir generation how oh, yeah. how much trains subways streetcars actually featured in a streetcar named desire uh so uh, it's 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 a fascinating kind of arm wrestle that's going on now and to use a, a car oriented analogy i th i think we're at a point where we have both of our feet firmly planted on the accelerator and the brake at the same time um that's certainly the case in places like china as as you were mm -hmm. mentioning they're doing both and yeah. and to an extent we are too so in our next episode i think what we're going to tackle is how are these changing perceptions of the car possibly leading to a new and different definition of the good life yeah, I think that'd be a great episode. We could probably talk about even more movies and sitcoms and how they kind of, in their portrayal of people going to tra driving to work in traffic, reveal that it's not all it really is um, has been sold as. Right, as. It's not all be. open roads yeah. and uh, you know nice forest drives through the forest and stuff like that. So looking forward to um, 
you know, to coming back for our next episode. And thank you very much for listening. Until then, all the best. Thank you. Bye.